Now, friends, we've concluded the first missionary journey of the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they've been into the Galatian country, and in the Galatian country, they have now gone to Gentiles 100%. Now, the church faces its first crisis because there were those that were believers that were Israelites, many of them priests, and they felt like they could not give up the Mosaic law. That is, as it touched certain things like the outward trappings, the ritual of it, circumcision, observing the Sabbath day, more or less following the Mosaic system, not the sacrifice probably, and yet they went to the temple at the feast days. They attempted to observe certain things. They would go through fasting, make certain vows, and that type of thing. They felt like now that Gentiles were coming in, that they should come through the Mosaic system. It'd be sort of initiation for them, that they, first of all, must be circumcised, that they must come in under the Mosaic system and follow that and that they were to be saved by keeping the law. Now, that has reached the church in Jerusalem. The apostles now must face up to this question. What are they going to do? So there is called in Jerusalem the first council of the church. And you will find that there have been certain outstanding councils of the church that have decided certain great issues, about, for instance, the validity and inerrancy of Scripture. Another council has decided on the deity of Christ and the fact that he's both God and man. And then there have been councils since then. Somebody says, we need a council today. We sure do. But you couldn't get the different groups together. You have to get them together either around the person of Christ are away from the person of Christ. And the church today is pretty much removed from the person of Christ. My friend, may I say that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very center of the church. And actually, it's not a question today of your ritual. It's not a question today of your membership. It's not a question of your ceremony. It's a question of your personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And I find today a great many people want to argue about rituals that personally are far removed from Christ. They don't fellowship with him. Sunday is they carry a big Bible under their arm and go to church and sing the songs lustily. But on Monday, the Lord Jesus is pretty far removed from them. May I say that he should occupy the very center of our lives and our attention. We should think of him constantly. You never should see a sunset without you think of him. He made it. You should not see a mountain. And my friend, the situations of life today, the tensions and the anxieties, he ought to be brought into our daily living. That's very important. Now, let's come to this council of Jerusalem. And we find here that a very fine group have come together here. Now, they are convened to consider law versus grace or law versus liberty. 
Let me read just a few verses here to get us into this chapter. Chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, it's important to see what the issue really is. It's not a question of circumcision, whether you do it or whether you don't do it, or whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat. The question is, must you do these things in order to be saved? Now, we'll move on into this and penetrate a little deeper into their problem. Now, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension... Now, again, I call your attention to Dr. Luke's method of using the diminutive and saying, no small dissension. Well, that means this was a regular Donnybrook. It was a knock-down and drag-out affair. This was a heated debate that they had. Now, again, verse 2, "...when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question." Now, let's pause there for just a moment to look at something. The gospel now is under question. And if you want a full explanation of the council, you ought to read the epistle to the Galatians. We'll get to that later and we'll spend time with it. But actually, the gospel is used in two senses in the New Testament. There is, first of all, the facts of the gospel, and that's absolutely basic and essential. Paul gives that in 1 Corinthians 15, the first three verses. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the gospel. It's nothing but the gospel. Nothing else is the gospel. By the way, he makes that very, very clear. And we need to see that it centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Now, notice what he says here. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Those are the facts of the gospel, and they concern the person of Christ. I move on down in 1 Corinthians 15 to verse 15. Paul says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Face up to it, brother. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no gospel today. But thanks be unto God, now is Christ raised from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. Those are the facts of the gospel. 
Now, we have the second, and that is the interpretation of the facts. That's the basic truth that's in the epistle to the Galatians. And that is the crux of the whole matter at this first council of Jerusalem, that the gospel hinges on the fact that, as Paul says in Galatians 3.22, "...but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin." that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that do what? Do nothing more nor less than believe. And again, in Galatians 2.15, he says, "...we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified." Now, that is important to see. The Judaizers in that day, and we need to see this, they are different than the liberals today. The liberal actually will deny the facts of the gospel. He'll deny that Jesus died for our sin. He can't quite deny that he died. Actually, of course, some today trying to make even Jesus Christ a myth that he never lived, never died, of course. Well, the fact of the matter is you just can't upset history quite like that. And they do deny the physical resurrection of Christ. But in that day, they did not deny it. There were too many witnesses. Paul could say, why, 500 witnesses saw him at one time. And my friends, if you get 500 witnesses to anything, you can go into court and win your case. No question about that. You can establish the fact with 500 witnesses. And besides, there are these apostles here. And they are there to testify. The facts of the gospel are not under question. It's the interpretation of those facts. The personal relationship of man to Jesus Christ is that. Should you go through the law? Christ, what he did for you on the cross, is that adequate to save you? Or do you have to go through a ritual or something? All right, now back to the 15th of Acts, and let's go with Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem. Verse 3, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, Paul and Barnabas give a report to the church in Jerusalem as they had to the church in Antioch. They said, this is what we've done. We've preached the gospel, and men and women over in the Galatian country have trusted Christ. They know nothing about the Mosaic law. They've trusted Christ. They're saved. Now, verse 5, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. Now, these are Christians, but they differ, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, you see, they want to add something to the gospel. And friends, when you add something to the gospel, you don't have a gospel. 
You've got a religion. You do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only approach that you can make to Jesus Christ is by faith. You have to come to him by faith. No other way will he let you come. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He's bottled the world into just this. And the only question God is asking the lost world today is just this. What do you do with my son who died for you? God doesn't come to you and give you a nice little Sunday school lesson and say, Now, I want you to be a good boy. I want you to join the church. I want you to go through this, that, and another thing. No wonder the thing has become a woman's religion with that. May I say to you, God is saying to you, My son died for you. What do you do with him? And your answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, this is pretty important, you see, that they're discussing in Jerusalem. Now, listen to them. We're to counsel. This is really exciting, by the way. I don't know about you, but this is much better than a ball game. All right, verse 6. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of the matter. Now, the apostles and the elders in the church in Jerusalem, they've come together. They're going to consider it. Now, notice we're beginning now to sum it up. And when there had been much disputing, I don't think they didn't argue. They really argued there that day. Simon Peter rose up and said unto them, If Simon Peter had kept quiet during all that disputing, he's a changed man, is all I can say. I'm of the opinion he had already put in his two bits worth before this. But now he's summing up. And he's going to do the thing he did. Well, this is the third time that he's gone over this with him. Well, he's suffering from the shock of it. He went in the home of a Gentile, preached the gospel without the law. They were uncircumcised. They didn't follow the Mosaic system. They ate pork. And yet they were saved. Notice this. Listen to Simon Peter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, they're going to listen to Simon Peter because he happens to be, and I say this kindly, I'll face him someday on this, and I am not going to say anything ugly about him, Well, he was rather narrow-minded. I don't think this man ever got very far away from the Mosaic system. Now, somebody says, ooh, and you mean he was saved? Yes, saved by grace. And whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, that makes no difference, friend. If you don't want to eat pork, don't eat it. And if you want to observe Saturday, you observe Saturday. That's all right. That's your business. But don't you try to tell me what to do, because I've been saved by grace, too. And I'll observe another day, and I'll eat ham when I decide to. If you want to know the truth, I don't care too much for it. But the thing is, you have freedom in that connection. Listen to Simon Peter now. He said that Gentiles, by my mouth, heard the gospel, and they believed. They were saved. Now, verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by keeping the law? No. By going through a ceremony? No. By joining the church? No. 
by faith. By faith, friend. Simon Peter said, I went into the home of Cornelius. I gave them the facts of the gospel. What did they do? They believed, and they were saved, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. My friend, that's the way you get saved, by faith. And you don't have these things happen by you doing something. Jesus Christ did it all for you 1,900 years ago, and all God's asking you to do. What do you do with my son that died for you? That's the important question. Now listen to Simon Peter. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, Simon Peter makes a tremendous admission here. He said, if you want to know the truth, our fathers never kept the law. And I've made this statement, I'm sure, Many of you have heard us make it many times, and if you haven't, you will if you listen to the program. Did you know God never saved anybody by keeping the law? There's not a person that ever kept it. God has always saved on one basis alone, and that's on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And before he came, men brought a sacrifice. They brought it by faith. Abel knew the little lamb never took away his sin, But he knew that little lamb pointed to the one that God had told his mother about, that the seed of the woman would come and bruise the serpent's head. And he believed that. He believed God. That was the way. Now, will you notice, friends, and Simon Peter says to tell the truth, why don't we admit it? We don't keep the law. I want to repeat this again because I think it's important to say I know nothing that'll make a hypocrite out of a person and this pretension that you are living a life on a high plane and well-pleasing to God, that you're keeping the Sermon on the Mount, you're keeping the law, and it's just hotsy-totsy for you. You are it, my friend. I want to say it to you, and I wish I could look you in the eye and say it. Why are you pretending? Why don't you admit you're a lost? sinner, that you do not please God, you have no capacity for him, and why don't you go to him in faith and trust Christ as your Savior come as a sinner, and he'll receive you. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's the way I came. Everybody I've ever met that's ever been saved had to come that way. Saul of Tarsus came like that. The Ethiopian eunuch came like that. They've all come like that, friends, that have come to him. Now, will you notice what he says here? We shall be saved, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And Simon Peter puts it so nicely. He says, we're going to be saved just like they're going to be saved. And Simon Peter says, And he still didn't eat pork at this particular time. But he says, I'm not saved because I don't eat pork. I'm saved because I've trusted Christ. Saved by the grace of God. Now, will you notice verse 12? Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. I wish I could have heard those two men. In fact, I wish I could have sat in on the council of Jerusalem. Been wonderful. And these men, Paul and Barnabas now, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought 
among the Gentiles by them. And they had quite a story to tell. Paul was raised from the dead. They have quite a story to tell. These are the apostles. They had the signed gifts. And we don't have apostles today, and we don't have signed gifts. We have a lot of things today, friends, that are taking our minds and hearts off the person of Jesus Christ. It's just all experience, experience. You've had an experience. Well, the experience is, what does Jesus Christ mean to you today? Now, will you notice, we come now to a summation of all of this. But apparently James now, and this James, of course, apparently took the place of James the brother John who had been put to death. And this James apparently, well, there's some question of who he is. Was he the other James, the last now, who become James the leader? Or is this the one who wrote the epistle of James who might have been another James, if you please? And again, we're going into all of this when we get to the epistle of James. Probably I ought to stop and say this at this juncture. I believe that the proper way of studying the book of Acts and the historical books of the Old Testament, like the double books of Samuel, the two Samuels, the two Kings, the two Chronicles, to take the prophets who prophesied during the different reigns. And when you come to, for instance, the reign of Hezekiah, then bring and study Isaiah. They go together. And very frankly, from here on in the book of Acts, it would be well to pull in the epistles. We've already made a reference to Galatians. And this would be a good place with chapter 14 and 15 would be to study now the epistle to the Galatians. We're not doing it that way, but very candidly, that would be the proper way to do it. And actually, the epistle of James would come in very nicely here because this man is summing up. And the question is not, what James is it? It's James, and we'll leave it at that. Now, verse 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now, actually, what James does is he sums up the thinking of this council of Jerusalem. And he puts down God's program for the future. Now, for them who stood there with their nose pressed right up to the window of the opening of a new dispensation, very candidly, they had their problems. There are a lot of people still having their problems with the fact that a new dispensation is opened up. And that this is something that's quite wonderful, that the day of Pentecost brought into existence the church that's the thing that's important. Let's don't wash back over Pentecost. Something happened at the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. Now, uh, apparently, after Paul and Barnabas had made their report, now as they had done to the church in Antioch, they make it now to this group, this first council, then no one else had anything to say. Even the Judaizers are pretty much silenced by what's taken place. Now, notice what happens. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. And he means you and he means me when he says that, too. That is, God means it. James is just speaking to that crowd there that day, but 
God says to you and me, says, listen to this. This is important. And I think sometimes if a lot of us just listen to God and not do so much talking ourselves, and I know somebody says, point the finger at yourself, brother. Maybe I need to. But let's listen to what God has to say. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, if you want it put in a nutshell, put it in the language of Scripture, put it in the words of James here, what is God doing today in the world? Saving the world? No, no. Bringing in a kingdom? No, he's not doing that. What's he doing then? Well, he's doing what James says here. And he was merely repeating what Simon Peter had said. Take out of the Gentiles a people to his name. So that someday before the throne of God, there will be those out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are going to be before him. And the word's getting out today, friends. Getting out today as it never has before. Oh, I know this opposition today. We're in apostasy. A member of my former church, a very wonderful man of God, came to me one day. And he said, McGee, don't be so apologetic. He says, you know, that Dr. Tari preached to thousands of people. He went to Australia. <laughs> he went to England. He went around the world. He preached the gospel. But he said, did you know that he never did have the audience that you have on radio and that he never went to as many places at one time. Right now, friends, there are people of every color, every clime, every condition, every race, and practically of every nation that are here in this program. And actually, ours is a small network. There are some of these other very fine Christian radio programs that are on literally hundreds of stations. And they're pretty well girdling the globe today, friends. We're getting out the word. Thank God we're getting out the word today, you know. What's God doing today? He's calling out of the Gentiles a people to his name. Not everybody that listens. I just read good letters. That's all they let me have anyway. But I just read good letters. You know, some people write and they say, ooh, terrible things about me. And things that probably are truer than the good things. But my, they're not nice at all. May I say to you, friends, that not everybody's going to accept it. Why? Because God's calling out of people, out of the Gentiles to his name. And I'd like for you just to write that down. Underline this in the Bible. I have it underlined. I have a circle around it in my Bible. What is he doing? God is visiting the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And I'm thankful that he's given me the opportunity that he is. Now listen to this. And to this agree the words of the prophets. You thought this was contrary to the Old Testament, didn't you? Why, it's not. James says this is something that the words of the prophets all say as it's written. After this, after what? After he calls out a people to his name, 
after he calls out of the Gentiles, the people to his, after God calls out the church out of this world, and friends, he's calling out individuals today, and one of these days he'll call the church out of this world. That's the rapture. And that's the next thing on the agenda. God, after this, after he gets through with the church, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And friends, it's fallen down today. There's nobody around in the line of David at all. The only one today that has claim is sitting under God's right hand at this very moment, which has fallen down. And he says, I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That's what God's going to do. He's going to send Jesus. He says to him today, sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. I think God actually is calling out a people to his name, and he's bringing all the enemies of Christ, and they're going to be put underfoot, friend. The rebellion's going to be over one of these days. And the word out today is that the Spirit of God is saying, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way. I'll build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of man, the second step, I'll build again the ruins thereof, and I'll set it up. Here's the program of God, calling the people out of the world. His second step with the world is, he'll build again the line of David. The only one that's got any claims to it is the Lord Jesus. That the residue of man might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles. Now, today's calling out of the Gentiles of people in that day, all the Gentiles. I think that the greatest time of turning to God is yet in the future after the church leaves this earth. All the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And these are the ones that will enter the kingdom. You see that this is the third step of God, that the residue of man might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles, now known unto God, are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now listen to this man, James, now, as he hands down, not only summing it up, but he hands down now a decision, and a very important decision. And this decision is simply this. Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, he says, let's write unto the Gentiles that have turned to God, and that we do not attempt to put them under the Mosaic system, and that they are to be courteous. They must remember that a great many of the Israelites are offended about eating meat that had been offered to idols. Now, I'll go into that in 1 Corinthians about this matter of eating meat. You see, in that day, what the Gentiles did, especially in Corinth, was they would offer to the gods their best lamb or their best animal or whatever it might be. But they were pretty clever. They took it in, made an offering of it. And so the gods that were spiritual, they ate just a spiritual animal. So they went in and got the meat again. 
And they had a meat market in the temple. And if you wanted to get the best steaks in that day, the filet mignons and the porterhouse steak and the New York cut, that's where you went. The local meat market didn't have good meat, but you'd get it there. So the Gentiles, they weren't offended by that. Didn't make any difference to them where the meat came from. But the Israelite in that day was offended by it. That had been offered to idols. He'd been brought up that way. And so the thought is... When you have a Jewish brother over for dinner, don't offend him by bringing in something that's been offered to idols. It may be a lovely filet mignon. But when you have me over for dinner, friends, let's have the filets. I like them. And it wouldn't make any difference who they'd been offered to, far as I would concern. But somebody else might be offended, you see. Now, notice what he says that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication. And you notice that? Adultery in that day was something that they didn't mind committing. The Gentiles lived in it. In fact, it was a religious rite. By the way, we're going back to paganism today. We talk about the new morality and the idea of sex, sex, sex. My friend, that was a religion a long time ago. Our ancestors, when they came out of the woods, half naked, eating raw meat, they had a new morality also. And the closer people get to God, they'll get right on this matter of sex, by the way. And adultery will be wrong. And that's the thing. They're to abstain from these things, and from things strangling from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day, then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas. By the way, notice that man Silas. He's going to be a partner with Paul, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. Listen to this. This is so lovely. Oh, today, if Christians could learn to act like Christians were intended to act. Listen to this. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Now, these are the Gentiles that turn to God. They send to them this lovely letter. For as much as we've heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. They have no authority to give you that line at all. And anybody tries to put you under law, friends, just doesn't have the authority of the Word of God. Verse 25, "...it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord." to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> and now they say, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, what have you suffered for him? What has it cost you to follow him? If it's not costing you anything, and if it hasn't caused you to take a stand in order that you might give the Word of God out, I want to say this to you very candidly. I personally don't want to listen to you because you have many things to say to me. The church there says these men have hazarded their lives. You listen to them. 
Now, verse 27, "...we have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by our mouth." Now, we're not just letting Paul and Barnabas come back and tell you, because you would say, well, of course, they'd bring back that kind of report. We're sending a couple of our brethren along to confirm what they're going to tell you. Verse 28, "...for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us." Isn't that lovely? to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, from things strangled, from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare you well. That's all we've got to say to you. Isn't that lovely, friends? What a lovely note this is. Now, verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they'd gathered the multitude together, remember, friends, the church was a big thing then. The multitude came together. They delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. You know, there's consolation and comfort in the gospel, friends. There's nothing but condemnation in the law. The law condemns me. The law is a mirror. When I look in it, I say, oh, McGee. You're ugly. McGee, you've fallen short of the glory of God. But the gospel says, come on to God. He wants to receive you, and he can save you by grace. It comforts us, you see. Now, we find here, "...and Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words, and confirmed them. And after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Silas and Paul got along. Silas said, I like this fellow Paul. I'm going to stay with him. And he stayed there at the church in Antioch. And maybe he liked the idea that they were serving pork at the Gentile table, by the way. Maybe like that. I don't know. But he stayed. Verse 35, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Actually, Barnabas and Paul were the pastors of the church, but now it's Paul and Barnabas. And some days after now, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again Visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord. See how they do. Paul had a concern for the churches. He had a concern for the believers. And he didn't trust those Galatians too much anyway. So he said, let's go back and visit them, Barnabas. And Barnabas, listen to this. Now, Barnabas, generous fellow that he is, but I want to say this about him. When he made up his mind, he's pretty hard-headed also. After all, we're all human beings, aren't we, friends? And we all still have that old nature, and sometimes well, sometimes you should be hard-headed and take a stand. Notice, and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now notice, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Now, Paul has some convictions also. Paul says, no, won't take him. And Barnabas says, we will take him. Say, I'm glad these two brethren had this little altercation, because it does reveal to me they're human. It reveals to me that even the saints sometimes can disagree without being disagreeable. It didn't break up anything. This wasn't the beginning of two different churches in Antioch. 
They just disagreed. And that's all right to disagree with some of the brethren. I've always felt that I don't mind them disagreeing. I just pray that sometimes they're going to see the light as I see it. That's all. Well, maybe I'll see the light as they see it, too, by the way. Now, notice these two men are disagreeing. Verse 39. Now, you think this is small? Listen to this. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark, sailed unto Cyprus. And we never follow Barnabas any longer. Now, he went to Cyprus where they had a great ministry. And that was the place that Barnabas had come from. He had a desire to take the gospel to his people. And we know from tradition, he had a great ministry there. And from Cyprus, a great ministry was carried on in North Africa. Well, he sails off the page of Scripture here, and there's silence. And we do not know about his ministry. From here on, we're going to follow Paul. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. Now the church has two mission projects now where they only had one before. And Barnabas is going one direction, and Paul going another direction. This is God's method. God will use this. Paul chose silence, and the brethren recommended them, and both are missionaries. Now, verse 41, "...and he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches." And if you follow on your map the second missionary journey that we have, you will notice that he went by land, apparently, from Antioch. He went on up into Syria and Cilicia, and then he came over to the Galatian country again, Derby, Lystra, and Antioch. And we are going now next time to follow Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey. And I do not know about you. I love to travel, and I love to travel with Paul. Because if you're going to travel with him, and I think if any Christian, you're going to have a good time and there's going to be excitement. If there's anything that's, to me, almost unpardonable, it is a dull uninteresting Christian. My friend, things ought to be happening around you if you're a child of God. You ought to be in some sort of movement getting this word out. Now we come today, friends, to the second missionary journey of Paul in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Now, if you have our notes and outlines, and I trust by now that all of you have these notes and outlines because you will find them extremely helpful, and especially in the book of Acts, as we have rather complete notes for this book. And we have maps. We have three maps that show the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And if you have the notes, you can follow it now on the map, the direction that we're going and the places Paul will visit. Now he begins to visit these Galatian churches because of the fact that there's where the problem had arisen that the council of Jerusalem was that Judaizers had gone in there and had turned the minds and hearts of these people in this direction, and they wanted to get under the law. And Paul wrote Galatians to warn them about doing that, that actually... To be saved meant to trust Christ plus nothing, and that works of any kind, 
and works of the law, of any kind of law, was futile to bring a sinner into a right relationship with God, and that the transaction was completed when Christ died upon the cross, and we accept that that his work of redemption is entirely adequate for our salvation. Now, he goes back over these churches, and you'll notice chapter 16 now, and I'm reading at verse 1. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, and believed, but his father was a Greek which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, you'll notice that he came to Derbe, then he went on over to Lystra, it's on his route, and Iconium, and there in Lystra, why this young man, Timotheus, Paul knew his mother and his grandmother, and he had turned this young man to the Lord. So Paul takes him with him. Now Paul has Silas and Timothy. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. And took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Now notice the method of the apostle Paul. When he went up to Jerusalem, he took Titus, a Gentile, and he wasn't circumcised, and Paul wasn't about to have him circumcised. But now, when he's out trying to reach these people, he has this man circumcised. Why? So that won't be an argument, not that there was any merit in it. Paul said that, I've become all things to all men, that I might win some. To the Jew, i become a Jew. To the Gentile, a Gentile. Now, he's doing this to break down all arguments. Some people come to me and say, now, I want to join a certain church. And they say, now, they have a peculiar form of baptism. And when I say peculiar, I should say different from the idea that I have a baptism. And should I be baptized that way? Well, I says, is it a good Bible church? They say, yes in a place that you can serve and be blessed and grow in grace, the knowledge of yes. Well, then I said, I would just go ahead and be baptized and go in. May I say to you that these things that are, in one sense, not essential to salvation, I think that there's a great deal of elasticity in these areas, not concerning the fundamentals, but certainly here. And so Paul has this young Hebrew, he's half Hebrew, his mother was. So Paul has him circumcised so that there can't be any argument about him because his father was a Greek. Now verse 4, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained to the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, notice Paul has another tremendous ministry in the Galatian country. Not only having visited the churches that were formed the first time, multitudes in other places now turn to Christ and other churches are formed. And these were the Galatian churches. 
And we're told here in verse 5, so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now he continues on. Verse 6, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia. Now Galatia includes all this area, and I'm of the opinion Paul moved into the northern part at this particular point. But they were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now the province of Asia is down south where Ephesus is. In fact, Ephesus was the chief city of the province of Asia. Now, it would look as if what Paul intended to do, that he was making a circuit through Asia Minor, which was heavily populated in that day, and it was really the center of Greek culture, and a great commercial area, great political area, a great educational area, And Paul uh, apparently intended, having gone through the Galatian country and Phrygia, it looks as if he intended to go down in the province of Asia and just make a circuit, probably, and go back to Antioch and report again. But the Spirit of God had something else in mind, and we're told that the Holy Spirit forbade him to preach the Word down in Asia. That's amazing, isn't it? Paul wanted to go there. And the Spirit of God wants the Word of God given out, but this is not the place for Paul at this time. So Paul naturally thinks if he can't go south, he's to go north. And Bithynia was in the north along the Black Sea, and there was a very heavy concentration of Hebrews in that area. And it was a big population there. That section, of course, is in Turkey today. Now, we are told, after they were come to Mysia... They assayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now, they are forbidden of the Spirit to go south into the province of Asia. The Spirit of God forbids them to go north into Bithynia. He's come from the east. Where is he going? Not but one direction to go, and that's to go west. You see, it was not Horace Greeley of the New York Sun who first said, go west, young man, go west. It was the Spirit of God speaking to the Apostle Paul. So he just keeps moving west, and he comes to Troas. But he stops there because you'd have to take ship if you continued to go from then on. And Paul couldn't imagine where he was to go from here. Now, what happens? Well, I think if you'd met Paul in this delay that he had in the city of Troas, and you'd have asked him, well, Brother Paul, where are you going? I think he'd have said, I don't know. And you and I, I'm sure, as good fundamentalists, we would have said, now, Brother Paul, you do not mean that the great apostle to the Gentiles does not know where he's going next. Sure, you Know the will of God for your life. And I'm sure we could have given him quite a nice little talk on the will of God for his life and how to find out the will of God. My, I've read so many books on that. Just too bad Paul didn't have one of those books there at the time. But he didn't know. And why? Because the Spirit of God is leading him, friends. And he's waiting And it's going to take a mighty movement to get him out of Asia over into Europe. But that's what's going to happen. 
Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And now that's his call, to go over into Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea here, and it's in Europe. Paul's in Asia. Now, this is the crossing of the gospel from Asia into Europe. And the Spirit of God now is moving in this direction. Now, I do not know why he didn't move Paul to the east, to China. He didn't. He moved him to the west. And I do not know about you, but I thank God for the fact that this is the direction that he went. Because at this particular time, my ancestors and of the two families, one family was in the forests of Germany, and they were pagan and heathen, worshiping all kinds of idols and given to idolatry, and a low people and a pagan people and a heathen people. That was my ancestors. That's one side of the family, and the other side of the family is not any better. They were over in Scotland. And I am told that they were the dirtiest, filthiest savages that have ever been on top side of this earth. I thank God the gospel went over there. Now, I know some of you are smiling now, and I want you to get that smile off your face, because if you think my ancestors are like that, and maybe that your ancestors are not like that, may I say to you, most of you that are listening to me today, your ancestors were living in the cave right next door to my ancestors, and they were just as dirty and filthy as mine were. Thank God the gospel crossed over into Europe. This is a great crossing, friends, and there's something for us to note about it. Verse 10, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. Now, who in the world is we? We've never had we before. It's been they and them and he and him. What about we? Well, Dr. Luke has now joined the party. We have quite a party now, friends. We have a quartet, and I'm sure there were others also, but a quartet we can identify. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke now. And this is quite a delegation that crossed over into Europe. Verse 10, and after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia. Now, that's on the coast there, you will note. And the next day to Neapolis. Well, Neapolis is just inland a little. And from thence to Philippi. Now, that is their destination in Europe. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. Now, Paul went to a strategic center to begin his ministry in Europe. And that makes the church in Philippi a remarkable church. And for other reasons, we'll see when we get to the epistle to the Philippians, because this is the church that was closer to Paul, and he was closer to the church. This was the church that loved him, and he loved this church. Wonderful saints in this church. Now, will you notice 
We are told that from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And a colony means that it was a Roman colony. It was a particular significance. Here's where the governor was. They had Roman customs here. They spoke Latin. This is the place where they were like Rome. And from thence to Philippi. And it was a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Now, there was a prayer meeting that met there down by the river. And I wonder if that prayer meeting had anything to do with Paul coming over to Europe and the vision, you see, of the man of Macedonia actually was a woman by the name of Lydia holding this prayer meeting, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is over in Asia Minor. It is one of the seven churches that our Lord wrote to in the second and third chapters of book of Revelation. And this woman had come from over there. She worshipped God. She'd worshipped the living and the true God, but had very little knowledge. She heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there, and she constrained us. Now, this woman, Lydia, was a remarkable person. She was very dominant, dominant in leading of the prayer meeting, the first convert in Europe, and dominant in the church that was in Philippi. And I do not know about Mr. Lydia, but he was around there somewhere, And there are a lot of families like that, you know, where the woman is the dominant one in the family, and that's the way it was here. And thank God she's this kind of a woman, because the entire household turned to God through her witness, and now Paul boards there with, I think, some of the others. And she constrained us. Now, apparently a person of means, or she couldn't have taken care of. Now, it came to pass as we went to prayer certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain with soothsaying. Now, these people are not foolish. And again, you have this demon-possessed woman, and Paul casts out the demon. We're seeing a resurgence of demonism lately. Now, demonism is a reality. And here's this girl here, and there were certain ones, her owners, she was apparently a slave, They were using her, and they were making a great deal from it. In other words, the mafia had already begun there. Paul now cast out the demon. Verse 19, when a master saw that their hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. You know, when you touch a man's pocketbook... Then he begins to move, and so they really now turn against Paul and his group, and they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly 
trouble our city, teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. You see, they were a Roman colony, and they used that as the excuse. These men are trying to change things here. Well, we're told the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. They sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Where a wonderful thing. Here are these men at midnight beaten, backs lacerated, and they're singing praises unto God. No wonder the prison doors were shaken loose. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loose. Now the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, He drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Now, this Philippian jailer, look at him just for a moment. He was responsible for those prisoners, and he naturally assumed that the doors were open, and the chains were there, they were gone. And he was responsible for it and would have to forfeit with his own life. So he stands there poised, ready to fall on his sword. And when a man's in a position like that, he thinks about eternity. And that's what this man did. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm. We're all here. Then he called for a light, sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas, brought them out and said, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? When he looked into eternity, he knew he was a lost man. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And who else? Thy house. How? By this man believing? No. By them believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And if thy household believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved too. That's what he means here. They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes. What a difference. He'd put the stripes on. Now he's a changed man. He was baptized, he in all his straight way. Then he brought them into his house. He set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. When it was day, the Madras sent the sergeants, let those men go. Now, you see, they knew what they'd done had been illegal. They said, now, get them out of town. Paul says, I won't leave like that. I'm a Roman citizen. When they found that out, because this is a Roman colony, they were a little uneasy. And so they came and begged, besought them, and brought them out, and desired them to depart out of the city. They went out of the prison entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and then they departed. What a marvelous chapter this is.